Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts will be pleasing in your sight. For you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I wonder if you can think of a time in your life, might be more recent than you might wish, when you just really felt a sense of pain. A sense of of loss, a sense of hurt. It might have been because of an exterior circumstance, something from life that happened that shocked you, stunned you, left you sort of dazed. It might be something that someone said or did that uh, hurt you deeply. Someone you trusted. Someone you had a relationship with. You know, it seems to me that as painful and as difficult and real as the the, the circumstances of life are that come to us, and and as, as devastating as those can be at times, I wonder sometimes if if the deepest pains that we experience aren't from people we trust. Things that people say, things that people do, things that people with which we have risked, people with which we have a relationship, and, and they turn on us, betray us. That's a deep pain that's hard to get rid of. We don't know exactly what's happening with David in this psalm. It's one of those psalms that gives us very little context. Nothing at the beginning that says why David wrote this or the context of him writing it. But we get a little glimpse in this passage of maybe what's happening in David's life. In verse 14, David says, Oh God, insolent people rise up against me. A violent gang is trying to kill me. You mean nothing to them. Now that may not tell us much. It may mean that that David is being attacked by the Philistines or some of the other peoples of the nations around him. But when I read that, I have a feeling, I have a sense, that this is not one of those things that comes from, from people who are a general sense of people attacking Israel, as much as it is people who are close to David who, are, who have done things to him. What comes to my mind is his relationship with, with King Saul. Saul's his mentor. Saul takes him in, invites him in to live in the palace, and, and, and they become very close. And then Saul becomes jealous of David, and, it, and soon Saul is trying to kill David, and Saul's army chases David all over the countryside for months on end. And, and David is on the run, and it strikes me that that might be a circumstance out of which David writes this. Maybe it's his son Absalom who poisons the people against David. And eventually, so much so that he, he forces David to flee the capital city. And for a, a little while, Absalom takes over the country. And David is left to grieve what has been done to him by his son. It's hard to say, but it seems to me like those are circumstances that fit this psalm. And in the middle of that, as David offers this prayer to God, it strikes me as significant that the very first thing David prays, the first words out of his mouth, 
are God, help me. You be, beginning at verse 1, bend down, O Lord, because I need your help. Protect me, save me, be merciful to me. I'm calling on you constantly. David begins this psalm by acknowledging his need. God, I need you. That probably in some ways doesn't surprise us until you begin to think about it a little bit. Because the reality is, you and I have this sense in our spirits that to be a follower of God, to be a mature follower of God, means that we are strong. And we operate from a position of strength. And our tendency when we're hurt, our tendency when we feel pain, our tendency when we've been betrayed is to step back and say, well, I'll just figure it out and take it. Because that's what Christians do. But the reality is that is not what God calls Christians to do. David is doing exactly what God wants him to do, and that is to acknowledge the fact that what has happened to him is beyond him. And the only way he's going to get through this is if God helps him. Now you would think of all the people in the Old Testament, David might be the one who would stand up and say, I can handle this. Because when I think of David, I think of strength. I mean, you know, he takes on lions and you got the whole thing with Goliath and all the things that happen in David's life. I have this sense that when David walks into the room, there is just this presence of strength that accompanies him. Just this aura of strength about his being present. He carries himself that way. And yet, what do we find him here? We find him here weeping and saying, God, I need your help. I can't do this. And being a follower of God is not how strong can I be. It actually starts and continues with how vulnerable am I willing to admit I am. We live our lives and we grow spiritually with God, not by saying I'm strong, but by saying I'm weak, I'm needy. Because it's when we admit that, it puts us right in the crosshairs of God's grace. Because only when we admit that we need God's grace are we able to experience God's grace. Because every other mindset is pushing it aside, saying, I'm good, I don't need you. And David is saying, I can't live without you. I can't manage this on my own. I think that's at the heart of the parable Jesus tells in Luke 11. When he talks about the the man who has a friend come to him in the middle of the night, been on a long journey, midnight, late, and, uh, the, and he doesn't have any food in the house. And his friend who has come to visit him is hungry. And hospitality is so vital in that culture that if you don't feed your guests, there's something wrong with you. You're shamed. But what's he going to do? There is absolutely not a crumb of bread in the house. There's no 7-Eleven to run to. You know, he can't run down to the nearest fast food restaurant. The only thing he can do is go to his neighbor. And he goes to his neighbor and he pounds on the door and he says, Hey, I need help. I got a friend here who explains the story. And the neighbor says, Go away. We're all sleeping and in bed. It's late. I don't want to mess with you. And then Jesus says, But. He says, He will get up and help him, not because he's a friend, but because this man of this man's, the NIV says, shameless audacity. 
What he really means is his willingness to admit his need. His willingness to to come and say, look, I I know it's bad and I know I look bad, but I have a need and and I need you to help me. And it all starts right there. The reason we have to talk about that is because our natural inclination is when we, when we appeal to God for help, there's something in us that wants to appeal based on our worthiness. God, I need you to help me because look at what I've done for you. Look at how well I've followed the rules. Look at how often I go to church. Look at how much I read my Bible. If that doesn't get me something, what am I doing it for, right? I sort of had this this picture in my mind of David kneeling before God in prayer and sort of turning over to the wall where, in my mind, there hangs Goliath's shield and his sword, maybe his head. And, And he's looking at it and he's saying, God, you see that, right? You remember that, right? You know what I did for you, right? It's natural for us to say, to find it difficult to purely rely on our need and our vulnerability to receive God's help. There's something in us that says, I need to prove that I'm worthy of God's help. And the reason we wrestle with that with God is because that's how we work with one another so often. We have this transactional kind of relationship far, far too often with people. I'll do this for you, you do this for me. And we talk about, you know, I don't want somebody to help me because then I'm going to have to owe them. And we do that with God. And what we don't realize is that it's one of the most pagan ways of thinking that's possible. It is one of the ways that, one of the things that defines the difference between Yahweh and the gods of all the other nations around them. That's what all the other nations around them think about their gods. Because their gods don't want to help them. Their gods do not love them. Their gods could care less about them. They're a nuisance. And so you have to coerce and trick and cajole the gods to give you what you want. And one of the ways you do that is to prove how worthy you are. And, and David and we fall into the trap of doing the same thing. And what we're really saying is, God is no different than all these other gods. And I'm not sure there's anything more insulting to Yahweh than that. Because Yahweh is the God who loves us and cares for us. He created us out of love and grace and desire. We don't ever have to convince God to help us or to love us or to show grace to us. What we need to do is to be willing to accept all that God wants to give us. And that's why so much of this psalm is about David acknowledging the character of God. Beginning in verse 5, David says, O Lord, you're so good, so ready to forgive, so full of unfailing love for all who ask for your help. I call to you whenever I'm in trouble and you will answer me. No pagan God is like you, O Lord. None can do what you do. All the nations you made will come and bow down before you, Lord. They'll praise your holy name for your great and perform wonderful deeds. You alone are God, for your love for me is very great. You have rescued me from the depths of, the de- of death. You, O Lord, are a God of compassion and mercy, slow to get angry, filled with unfailing love and unfaithfulness. And David, you may, <clears throat> we may look at that and think that David is simply trying to butter God up. And say, look, God, I'll tell you all these great things about you and then you'll help me. But I don't think that's the way David is doing. 
I think David is recognizing he needs to remember who God is. <coughs> Excuse me. Because in verse 2, David says, Lord, I, I, want, I need you to help me. Haven't I lived a good life? Haven't I done all the things that you want me to do? Haven't I performed? Haven't I? And he's got this false view of God. And David realizes he needs to be reminded of the nature and the character of God. That you don't have to trick and cajole him. You don't have to coerce God to be good to us. It's who he is. It's what he does. It's what he loves to do. But we need to be reminded of that. David needs to be reminded of that. That's why God establishes the the spiritual disciplines for his people. Because every time we read the scripture, we're being reminded of who God is. And every time we pray, we're coming face to face with who God is. And we fast, it gives us time to think about who God is. And we go through the sacraments to connect us with who God is. That's why God establishes the Sabbath worship and the festivals and all the ways in which the people come together because they need to remember. And when you read through the Old Testament, every time the people go astray from God, it's because they forget. And every time you and I live with false images of God, it's because we forget. And we need to be reminded. That's why we gather for worship every Sunday. And we sing songs about who God is. And we pray prayers about who God is. And we give to remind us how generous God is. Because we need to be reminded. Because we are incessantly forgetful people. And the forgetfulness leads us not toward God, but away from God. Because you see, the real battle here is not just the pain that David is experiencing. And the real battle is not just the pain that you and I experience. The greatest struggle of all of this is what's going on inside of us and how we respond to what has happened to us. And that's why David prays in verse 11, Lord, give me a pure heart. Or as a number of translations have it, give me an undivided heart. Give me a heart that looks like you. Give me a heart that is focused. Give me a heart that has direction toward you. I need that. See, David is wrestling with with a divided heart. The reason David prays that prayer is because he knows the struggle, the inner struggle going on within him about these people who've mistreated him. And I suspect that his wrestling in this psalm is a sense of of bitterness and resentment and, and vengeance and hatred that he senses is beginning to grow within him. And I suspect that's what David is experiencing because it's what you and I experience and I don't think we're all that different. And the greatest threat to us spiritually is not nearly so much what people do to us as it is how we respond. Because the evil one is coming to us and saying, you need to hang on to that pain. You need to hang on to that and and. and And you need to hang on to the bitterness and the hatred and the resentment because it makes you feel good. And we've all experienced that, right? 
I mean, we've all experienced that sense of, of vengeance, that sense of, of getting back at people, that sense that it makes us feel a little bit justified and probably a little bit superior. But the problem is, all of that stuff doesn't help us. It kills us. Because anything the evil one whispers in our ears has one purpose, and that is to destroy us, because that's his goal. And to hang on to that, and to nurse that, and to cultivate that, anger and resentment and bitterness is going to kill us. Now, there is a difference between an initial response of anger, an initial response of of pain, an initial response of how we may feel toward people. That's just human being human. There's nothing we can do about that. But the real issue is, then what do we do with it? Do we keep hanging on to it and nursing it and cultivating it? Or can we let it go and give it to God? Maybe David's deepest prayer of needing God's help is right here in this inner struggle within him of his attitude. And that's why he prays for a pure heart. An undivided heart. What he's really praying, I think, is God, give me your heart. Give me your heart of compassion. Give me your heart that is slow to anger. Give me your heart that is forgiving. I mean, it's not a coincidence that forgiveness is so much a part of the, of the teaching and the life and the ministry of Jesus. Because that's the nature of the kingdom of God. And perhaps what we're getting in this psalm is just a little glimpse of of what God always intends his people to be and what he always intends his kingdom to be. A kingdom of forgiveness, a kingdom of grace, a kingdom that looks like him and people who look like him. And you get a glimpse of that in David's own life. Because when Saul is chasing David all over the countryside, threatening him, And his desire is to take his life. David has two opportunities at least where he can surreptitiously take Saul's life and end the whole thing. And David refuses to do that. Because it's not the right thing to do. And when Absalom has forced David to flee Jerusalem and David's army is beginning to to take back the, the country, David's last words to them are, be gentle with Absalom. I care for him. Boy. I think we see in those actions of David what he's praying in this prayer. God, give me that kind of heart that is forgiving and slow to anger and loving. And that's why Jesus says that we turn the other cheek and go the extra mile and pray for those who persecute us. Because ultimately, it's only through forgiveness and grace and love that we find freedom. We think that holding on to this, the bitterness, holding on to the resentment, we think that's in our best interest. But actually, it's bondage and it's slavery and it will kill us. It will destroy us. It's forgiveness that sets us free. That's why 
when Jesus comes, at the heart of all that Jesus is and does, is God's forgiveness to us. To experience it and to give it. That's freedom. That's life. David gets to the end of the psalm and he says, God, give me a sign so that my enemies will be put to shame. You know, we all want a sign that God's at work, right? And there's something to be said where that's okay. We're looking for ways to, to bolster our faith. And David is saying, look, Lord, what he's really praying here is when he says, about put my enemies to shame. I think what he's saying is, let everybody know the truth. These people have vilified me in public. These people have, have said these things about me. So let everyone know what is true and right. Make it clear. We don't know what happens. And you and I, sometimes we are, sometimes our reputation is restored. Sometimes the truth comes out and people are revealed for what they are. But sometimes it doesn't. And the call of the gospel is, can we trust God even though? Can we trust God when what we want happens and when it doesn't? Can we, can we pray, continue to pray for an undivided heart when we get the answer and the solution we want and when we don't? What I love about God is that he starts with us right where we are. You always expect us to say, like, when you get your act together, then we'll, you come back and we'll talk. No, he just starts with us right where we are. And sometimes our first prayer is, God, help me to forgive and to love and to be patient. Sometimes we're not there yet. Sometimes our first prayer is, God, help me to want to forgive and to love, to be patient. And sometimes our prayer is, Lord, help me to want to want to Forgive and be patient. And I think God is saying any of those prayers are okay because your heart is at least turned in my direction and I will help you. We have no idea how it may turn out. But we trust him. That he's at work, that he's good. I've I told this story before in the past, but I have a number of people at times say to me, it, it helped me in this particular situation. And so it seemed appropriate again for today. And it's a story about E. Stanley Jones, who was probably one of the most famous missionaries of the middle part of the 20th century. He spent most of his life in India. His influence spread not only around India, but all over the world. He was famous, very, very, very popular, very connected person. And lots and lots of people knew the name E. Stanley Jones. And uh, there was a man that he supported, another prominent man. He supported this man's ministry for years. And the day came when, when E. Stanley realized that he could no longer support this man's ministry. And when he told him that, the man's response was to vilify E. Stanley Jones in the public press. He told lies about him. He exaggerated things. He said things that really tore at E. Stanley's reputation. E. Stanley Jones was a, a pretty forceful personality. He had a way with words, and so he sat down and he wrote a letter to this man. And, and he said when he got done, he really, it was a kind of letter that just ripped him to shreds. 
He said that, if, you know, when you wrote it, he said, this is a letter that against there can be no argument. And after five minutes, he said, you know, well, I don't feel quite as good about it. And after 10 minutes, he wasn't feeling even, he was feeling even less good about it. And because of the doubt that the Holy Spirit had put in his heart, he went to some friends and said, hey, would you look at this? They knew the situation. Tell me what you think. It makes me realize how, how much, how good it was for us 30 years ago. When we wrote a letter, we had to take out a piece of paper and we had to write down it or type on it. And we had to fold it and we had to go get an envelope and we had to put it in the envelope and we had to seal it and address it and find a stamp somewhere and get it to a mailbox. And in all that time, it might be enough time for us to say, maybe I shouldn't send that. Whereas now, it's just a click of a button. A push of a key and a posting's out there and an email is sent. So he gave us this letter to these friends and they, wrote, they looked at it and he wrote three words in the margin and gave it back to him. And the three words in the margin were simply not sufficiently redemptive. And he said, all I had to do was read those three words and the Holy Spirit said to him, that's not going to be good for this person or for you. And he needed to tear it up. And he did. Are we holding on to bitterness, resentment? Can we trust God that he's at work when we see it and when we don't? Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy to us. Like David, we cry out, help us. Give us undivided hearts that we might know the joy and the freedom of love and forgiveness and grace through Jesus Christ. Amen.